have to wear a suit because I'm always wearing a suit. So yeah. Everybody comes in and wears suits. I've never seen you out of a suit, actually. <laughs> I literally sleep in the suit. Yeah. I, I sleep can... in it. Other than when I go to the gym. But how are you doing, Matt? You well? Yeah, I'm doing good, thank you. Excellent. I was Vegas. Yeah, it was really, really good. Yeah, it was You're a quick trip. Only, 10X. Only three and a half, only three and a half days, 10X, yeah. Thinking yeah. big. Want to buy two jets, a super yacht, and dominate the planet, but I've always yeah. wanted that, so that's good. In the right room. Have I met any of you, <laughs> have I met any of you before? No. Anybody met Matt? That's all right, then. Good. Got a fresh audience. So Matt's come all the way down from Cornwall, is it, today? So yesterday, De so you've travelled from Devon. Devon, yeah? yeah. So he's come a long, long way to be here with us today. So we really appreciate you and appreciate your time. You're welcome. And um, very excited for you to not only be able to share your story, but to be able to share kind of your knowledge around business and everything you've learned building your property empire and your business empire. So I know you started as a young man that was left school early and launched his um, first franchise for his first month martial arts studio with a little bit of money so can we start there and kind yeah. of get the audience to know who you are and where you began yeah, sure I was just like the bully kid at school who um, when I was like seven I was just no good at anything academically and there was this kid in class he's he actually works for me now he's um he basically used to are you allowed to swear in this one yeah you? you're fine yeah yeah he basically used to kick the or I won't swear because it looks bad he used to kick <laughs> the life out of me and um, yeah, and then obviously when, you, when you're a young child that hits your confidence and you don't study so hard, you don't pay any attention at school, you're worried, you're trying to make excuses not to go to school each day to your parents, but pretty good at that. And the child next to me said, why don't you learn martial arts? Because if you learn martial arts, then maybe you can defend yourself against this, um, this guy. And that's where it all started. So the first martial arts class I did was jujitsu, sorry, judo. Has anyone done martial arts here before? Yeah, so judo is like real throw in. I hated it. I, I was no good at that. And then the one next door in, in the same building was Taekwondo. And I've got these long legs and everything. So I was already able to do the kicks and could already do the splits and things. And that, that was my thing. I just knew back then, really, this, this is all I want to do as a career. Let's do this. But there was no blueprint for it. No one had done that before. So I thought, anyway. And then I, I progressed through school. And we, when you're underconfident, you're going to attract, so my parents kept on moving me schools, but you're still going to attract bullies because you're vulnerable and so on. It's more of a mindset thing than anything else. And then in the evenings, I'll be working on my martial arts, progressing through the grades, competing. And uh, the real crunch for me came in my mathematics class when I was about 13. My mum kept this, you know, at school you have exercise books, now you've probably got iPads, I'd imagine, and stuff. So we had an exercise book for the maths class, and I just found it very pointless because um, one of the GCSE questions for the mock exam was how many different ways can you put 50p into a phone box? Meaning like can you keep it two 20s and a 10p and so forth, five, five 10ps. I just thought, why am I learning this for? What's this gonna do for my career whatsoever? It's pointless. So in the back of the book, I turned to the back of the exercise book and I wrote all these goals down. And some of them are a bit ridiculous. Like I wanna do the splits on the chairs like Jean-Claude Van Damme, you seen him do that? That type yeah. of stuff. And um, yeah, I want a Ferrari by the time I was 20. I want to I be able to be the most well-known martial artist instructor in the world, be a millionaire by the time I was 20. And there was lots of silly things in there too, like a big pecs and a six pack and all this type of stuff. 
And um, that's all I focused on. That was my thing, really, because I knew I wouldn't do well at school. I don't, I'm not proud of that, but it just wasn't for me. I was not academic. I didn't want to be a doctor, a, a lawyer, or a dentist, or an accountant, which is, you need school for that. My mum was a lawyer. She's one of 14 children. And all of them have gone to university and got degrees. So I was like the black sheep of the family. They wanted me to be a vet or something like that. But nah, it wasn't for me. So I left school at 16. The only thing I could do that I felt would help me is become a personal trainer. So I got qualified as a personal trainer and I worked at the local gym and that was good for me because I, I was learning how to teach people. I know it's quite repetitive to teach people how to do lat pull down on bench press and guys to, lose, to gain muscle, women to, to lose weight. So it's quite repetitive, but it was a good grounding for me. And the goal was to gain a bit of age so that I can try and make this martial arts, this, this taekwondo, what I did, and just do that for a living. That's all I, there's one guy in England at the time and he was collecting cash at the end of the class and he was, he's doing okay, he's making three or four grand a month or so. But I just felt 16, no one's gonna really respect me if I start up my own business. Then it hit the fan then, the gym shut, the gym went bust. So I had no job and I had no choice really to do something about it. Now my parents moved to Devon my mum got a transfer, she was a solicitor, so she got a transfer to Devon. So I moved in with my girlfriend at the time, and there was no jobs going for personal trainers. So I moved down there and I moved in with my mum and dad, with her. And I got a job for £2.75 an hour as a lifeguard, I was qualified as a lifeguard. So that's one other achievement, I guess. And um, that time as a lifeguard was pretty painful. When you're working for £2.75 an hour, and it's casual, so they can call you in when you want you. And in the winter, because down in Devon, have you been to Barnstable before, any of you? That's where it all started, yeah. So down in the winter, no one's there. Right? There's, no, there's no career, there's no, uh, you're out with nothing. You've got very little work, because obviously you haven't got the holidaymakers there, spending money, but you're supposed to be dragging out the swimming pool. But I used that time, I did my job, obviously, looked at the water, most of the time the pool was empty, to think, how the hell can I do this? This thing, I know I can do it, but everyone's in my ear. My mum's saying, she was, she says, always said there's no such thing as can't, but she didn't think I was gonna make any money out of what they would call karate. And my dad was really against it. He called it legalized violence. And my grandfather, because on that side of the family, they all worked for the Brunel, uh, the railway. So it goes right back to my great great granddad. So they expected me to get a trade, be a mechanic or, or whatever it may be, working on the trains and so on, or go to university, I didn't want to do it over them. My grandfather, he took me into his like workshop and he said, come on, you're not gonna make any money throwing your legs around in the air, Matthew, sort this out. He ended up being my best fan, and apologizing for that. And uh, the next stage of the, the story really is that- How did you um, overcome, how did you overcome, how, well, how, how did you stop yourself from listening to them? Because I think again, when you're on that journey to success mm. and you've got big dreams, you've got big goals, you've got big, ambitions some of the people most closest to us can be the ones that are talking us out of doing it yeah, so yeah. we're just so focused that you went for it or you know have it, you got any advice that, to give on that it was that hunger because of the bully mm -hmm. it was that hunger that I, i'm going to show you one day you know right? yeah and and then on that my parents too i'm going to show you i can i can do this and my family and my cousins and stuff all took the university route most of them that I'm gonna, sh I'm gonna show you, you know? And, and all I teach all the time now is that love your parents, but don't take any advice off them. 
Mm -hmm. that's, that's the key. I'm good friends with Simon. And that's Ca good advice. In a lot yeah, of cases. Yeah, yeah. I'm good friends with Simon Cowan. You've all seen him when they set people on stage and he says, uh, who, taught, who told you you can sing? He said, oh, my, my parents, they were lying. You know, it's so true what Simon says. You just love your parents and grandparents, but don't take advice of them because your grandparents come from the industrial area. They were happy just to have a little box to live in because they were getting flipping bombed in the war. So for them, that's an achievement. For me, it's nothing worse than staying in the same house for 70, 80 years of your life, having one holiday a year. And then the next generation was a bit more confused, get a job, nine to five job, get good grades as well, and you know, go to college, university, slave away from someone, have a holiday a year, and then you get to retire at 67 now, it'll be 80 by the time we get there, and then have a holiday a year with your arthritis and your walking stick and then die. That's just not for me, thank you very much. Screwed to that. So it was the hunger of the bully. The bully was my, he, he apologized to me. He Facebooked me. I was like, man, you've got no idea what you've done, what you've, what you've achieved. What you, and we met on national TV. It's on, um, you can watch on YouTube. He wanted to meet me and, and apologize. And me being a bit of a media whore, I guess they call me. Well, I like, I like, you know, I understand the value of mainstream media still. I thought this story of him bullying me at school would be what, what's been created from it. Would be did vague. you roundhouse kick him on the show? I didn't, no. But <laughs> Philip Schofield, we did a show, you, you guys know this morning, right, with Phil, Phil and Holly. Philip Schofield was running a campaign called Be Kind, and it was to stop bullying in schools and so on. So I thought, what better opportunity? So I asked this guy, he's called Anthony. I said to him, um, let's go on TV and do it, you know? Because if it wasn't for him, I wouldn't become a multimillionaire, I wouldn't have met Michael Jackson, all this crazy stuff that happened in my life. This guy was the catalyst to the whole thing. So fair play to him. They kept us in separate green rooms. They had the rooms behind the TV show. We did meet. Now he was, he won't mind me saying this because it's been out in the media before and he talks about it. He was down in like pints of lager because he thought I was going to kick the shit out <laughs> of him. And the worst thing too, my wife, she's there, she packed me these white jeans. So it looked like I had martial arts trousers on. <laughs> so I know, I know Philip fairly well and Holland, they've done their show a lot. I sat next to Phil and they got me on first and, and they were going to bring Anthony in after he'd done the intro on me. He's like, Matt, you promised me you're not going to kick this dude in the head because he's drunk. Well, he's not drunk, he's getting drunk backstage. He's nervous as hell. You look like you're wearing a martial arts show and I know you know the media and how it works. There's a lot of value to you kicking this guy in the head and it, it will go viral worldwide. <laughs> you know, I said, Phil, don't worry, be absolutely fine. I've got something planned, but don't worry. And he looked frightened. And he goes, live. And that was the end of it. And he come on. I just shook his hand and said, thank, thanks for everything you've done for me. You know, you, you've made me. And look, you've changed millions of people's lives across the world. And uh, yeah, we became best friends. He works for me now. He's an anti-bully ambassador. So that bitch works for me now. So. <laughs> but uh, he's a great guy. And it for him. So it's the hunger. You hear a lot of this too. Most people who have gone on to achieve great things, have had a pain point that's driven them to go there and to continue to go for it because the pain never stops. You've always been, I've, I've been bullied, got bullied this morning on, on social media, depends if you want to take it that way. Because some wacky story that went out about me yesterday, but you just, you've got to learn to take those hits. The people don't take those hits, they pull back and they achieve nothing. Mm -hmm. Absolutely fantastic. Yeah. As you're telling the story, I've kind of got like, um, I'm visualizing um, like Karate Kid, getting bullied and then training in the evening. Yeah, Did yeah. you have like a Mr. Miyagi that you were training with? 
that was like training you up, and then one day you just like come in and there's like three dudes and you, you just know run what? on down. You kick laugh them, at that, but just give so them a paste in, so and then my, you're like, right, I'm the, the king now. My instructor is called Tim, and he was also my school. Now this couldn't happen nowadays because the world's gone so crazy, but he was also my school teacher at secondary school, and he was my taekwondo instructor too. So after school. I would get in his car and we'd go and train. We'd do weight training, we'd do martial arts training. So he gave me, he saw the potential in me, you know, that I could go on and do great things. Now his instructor was a proper Mr. Miyagi type. Nice. So I lived in Swindon. The Mr. Miyagi guy called Master Levan was in Bristol. He saw potential in me, but he would never really tell me. He would just work me. Like, well, I'm doing press-ups, he'd kick me in the belly and all this stuff and crazy things. And about then too, we all get inspired by different things. And, I, you know, Bruce Lee obviously is, for martial art, as you watch mm. his films, you think, I want to be like that guy, you know? And so when I was, I went for a period of the sta stage, I was reading all Bruce Lee's books and watching his films that, when I could, and um, I would be sparring, I'd be going like, wada, woo, wah! And he'd be like, you know, Matthew, what's wrong with you? You'll sort this out, you know? But uh, yeah, you all go through these crazy stages, don't we? It's like with the bodybuilding and all that mm. stuff. Why do we want to have big pecs and six packs all year round and all the rest of it? I <laughs> don't know, I've never had them. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's, it's a, you look back at it. It's to work. <laughs> like, like with the martial arts too, I used to do this split kick where you kick high up in the air. I look back now, what was I thinking? Mm. No one's that tall. Just pure ego thing. It's pretty know. cool though, right? Yeah, at it's the time cool. it's pretty cool. Yeah, absolutely. So what black belt are you now? I'm a seventh degree black belt in Taekwondo. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, so, but I don't I focus. Looking back through all of your... Um, pictures and all of that type of stuff online. You've got some cool, really, really cool magazine yeah. covers and all that yeah, stuff. Yeah, yeah. We had, it's official actually, we had the more, this is cool for me too, because when I was a kid, I used to cycle to those local news agents and buy these magazines, mm -hmm. martial arts magazines. And my dream was to be featured in it. But then when the editor reached out to me and said, yeah, I want you to be in the magazine, but I had to go and prove myself, go to the studio, spar with him. He's a proper mm -hmm. martial arts, like um, geek, you know, properly into it, as well as owning this big, Martial Arts Illustrated, it's a huge magazine. And um, he put me on the front cover. And it was controversial at the time, because I was only 17. And I had this signature kick, this flying kick thing. But everyone was talking about this guy who's making this ridiculous amount of money in this little sleepy town of Barnstable in North Devon. And I was getting the best, the, the people that are the legends in the martial arts sector were coming to check out what, what was going on. They couldn't understand it, because they thought it was all about how high you can kick and how good you are that would attract your clients in. Mm. Um, but yeah, it's official that from that magazine, he tells me I've had more front covers than Bruce Lee on that magazine. And he got asked more about me than Bruce, Bruce Lee because I made a point of staying controversial all mm -hmm. my life. Because you're not controversial, you're not relevant. If people aren't talking about you, you've got to worry mm -hmm. about it. So, so it, was that basically like the beginning of you building your personal brand? Yeah, so back then there was no such thing as the word personal brand. We would call mm -hmm. it image. Mm -hmm. So, so we got the life guard job. The next part of the story, I was broke, right? I was, I was living in a bed sit. We changed the sofa to a bed every night. It was humiliating. At Christmas, I couldn't, couldn't afford to buy presents. And my family, so against what I was trying to do, but they sent me food hampers and stuff. And the girlfriend I was dating at the time, sorry, Monique, I did have a previous life, but she was wonderful <laughs> and she, she's, she was not as wonderful as my wife. But she was wonderful and actually had this um, bit more of a drive that you've been talking about doing this thing for so long now. 
why, why don't you just get on with it? She bought me a briefcase for Christmas, basically, as like a, a, an anchor to make me get on with it. <coughs> and I still am denied for three or four months. And I launched my school. It did okay. I had 50, 60 people there. And they were, would arrive, they'd pay their three pounds a class. I'd, I'd collect it in an ice cream tub, go to the local bank. And I was doing all right. I, I didn't have to do much. I had this two pounds, 25 an hour job as a lifeguard. And I had this other supplementary income as a mm -hmm. martial arts instructor. But then the game changer came. One of my friends went to America. He went to um, San Francisco, I believe. And he came back and he, we had pages back then. Remember, the, you had pages, yeah. So you, the mobile phones were around, I think, but we had pages, so that's how I run my business from. He paged me to ring him. I go to the red phone box, which are now museum pieces, but they were a real thing everywhere. And I ring up my friend. He said, listen, I've just come back from America. They're like 25 years ahead of us, Matt. They're, they're multi-millionaire martial arts businesses out there. And I eat loads of them. He's just been to a conference with a thousand of them there. And we're, we're secluded in England because there's no internet back then. There was hardly anything. At least we're talking like 96, 97. And he said, you've got to get out there. And my first thing was, we, we don't, martial arts, we don't want to compromise standards for anything. So I didn't want to compromise standards for money. He said, no, they got the standards and they got the money. So I saved up my £2.25 an hour and my £3 per lessons from the from students I had. The problem you had is that when warm days come around or the summer, you, no one comes to your classes, you didn't get paid anymore. And I flew out to this big business um, conference just for the martial arts sector in San Francisco. And the guy who ran it, it was in his 80s, a guy called Nick Kikinas. And I went up and introduced myself to him. Because he was so quite impressed by that, because you've got this young kid who's used his last money, he heard about it, he's flown over, and he took me under his, under his ring, and he basically said, listen, I'm so impressed with you, you, you come and introduce yourself to me, and you've got all these people, must be intimidating. This guy's like mega wealthy, he's got shares in Marriott Hotels, he's not a martial artist himself, he just made a dance company millions, and a martial artist approached him and said, can you do the same with what you do with that dance company with martial arts, and he gave it a go and he built a whole consulting industry on the back of it. So he took me under his wing, he was like a second dad to me, and his sons as well, John and Mark, and they wanted to make a bit of an example out of me, because everyone in England were like, this won't work here, you know, this ain't gonna work. This American stuff ain't gonna work. So he, he gave me a map. He, I followed the most successful people in, the, in America around, became their best friends. Actually, one of them, I just flew back, he came over and uh, did a conference with me this weekend. He actually takes advice from us now, he's 63, so I owe a lot to him. And they, they're getting up like four in the morning, that's not me, you know, I thought this is madness. I took all the notes down, come back with all these notes, and they said implement what you can, some will work, some won't. The high fives didn't work, and the hugs, but, <laughs> but everything else pretty much worked. I was the first guy to put people on standing order, now it's known as direct debit in the, this sector. Mm -hmm introduce education, so it's about education, it wasn't about sport. It, education will never die. So parents will always want their kids to be more disciplined, respectful, good-mannered, grow up to be successful adults. The self-defense bit was kind of at like the bottom of the list, that's where we got it wrong. We'd have music in the lessons, be very high energy, and before I knew it, it just went bam, you know. Just, plus I walked the talk, you know, I, I wasn't a guy out there with a big belly trying to be this martial arts master, didn't beat the kids up with kicking in the press, it was like I was taught. It was very disguised in repetition. So that one location was a 10,000 um, population, but a little town called Braunson. It's actually a village, I think. 
and I had about 110 people that are paying 59 pound a month. My costs were 30 quid a week, so I was doing like six grand a month income, plus the other income streams like the gradings, where they pay 50 pound a time, merchandise, there's like 16 income streams linked to within my business model. I was smashing it. Parents got, got word of it, but they thought I'd just been a bit lucky, you know? So I thought, let's try it again. So Barnstable was the next biggest town, 30,000 population. And we have this building that's available, but it's an office building. So I mean, all the partition walls would have to be knocked off. It's no bigger than this room here. And um, yeah, I thought it'd be easy going. An estate agent was underneath it. He owned the building, two floors. So I went in there, introduced myself. I'd like to lease your building. Knock all your partitions down. Because what'd you do? He said, um, martial arts, karate. He said, you're not going to make any money out of that. It's ridiculous, but I had a little bit of luck. It does take a little bit of luck sometimes. When people say success is all about working hard, and it just takes a little bit of luck. So it, that is true. Right place, right time sometimes as well. And the estate agent, my mum was a conveyancing lawyer. You, a lot of you are in property, aren't you? So you get that. So she, was, she knew all the estate agents personally. So she put a phone call in and said, listen, I think my son might be on to something here. It's Richard, the guy's name, Richard, and maybe give him a six months rent free option. If it don't work, it don't work. And let him fund the partitions, knock, knocking down and decorating. And he, he, that's what he did. That's what he did. He gave me a six months <coughs> rent free period. And all over the new year, I was decorating. This is the whole thing. Observe the masses do the opposite because it's right on the square on the front in Barnstable. So I remember it really well, New Year's Eve, I was in there painting and I was looking out the window and you see the fireworks going off, everyone drunk, celebrating the new year in. And I'm thinking, what am I doing? Am I, is this right? I'm painting here. I should be out there getting drunk with other 18 year olds, you know? Anyway, seven months later, 700 members, 80,000 pound a month in income, 1,000 pound a month overhead, making a million a year. Smashed it. And then I did Let's it give a round of applause for that. Yeah. Amazing stuff. Yeah. How old were you at this point? 18. Yeah, 18. Wow. I, did it, I did it another five times, and that was all the areas in North Devon over and done with. That was it. Then it gets crazy shit from there onwards. So, so I, know, I know at a young age you met Michael Jackson, you became yeah. Michael Jackson's bodyguard. That was only about 20, though, right? No, it's kind of around so this, this period. Was so that, oh, around this, this period. This so was how did this all evolve from here? Yeah, so I had five schools, but I owned those schools. They, they were mine. And they were all pumping out great money. I was doing a million a year. I bought my first house. And then what happened is a, agent, a news agency came in. Now, this guy was a, he supplied stories to the media, basically. You know how that works. Mm -hmm. um, Southwest News. And he came in, and this, he had his children train at my martial arts academy, the big one, the building. And he, he got a calculator out. He's not stupid. He realized I was doing a lot of money. I had a... I had a supercar at the time as well. I think, it's, I think I might have had a Porsche 911 or something like that, a gold one. So it's quite random for an 18-year-old to have one of them. He got the calculator. Gold one. <laughs> yeah, I wish I kept it worth a fortune, really? wasn't it? Yeah, yeah, a little town, and I wonder why people hated me back then in that town, you know. Uh, but uh, he came in, he said, listen, Matt, I want to do a story. My kids love it here. He had a son and daughter. You were bullied at school. They all knew my story, no qualifications. You're clearly doing very well. And he took some pictures of me, interviewed me. And I thought it was the local paper, for Joe. And I, I said, uh, will this be local paper then? You think, yeah, I think it's a good chance it'll be. Flipping heck, two days later, it was the front page of every 
tabloid. Billy Board becomes millionaire. And a picture of me in my karate suit, picture of me when I was a little vulnerable seven-year-old. Um, I looked like a right, yeah, like a kid who's going to get a kick in, basically. And they did the contrast. Me sat in my, in my car. It was everywhere. And it was when mainstream media newspapers were massive, like 20 million copies a day. So you knew it. When you are in the paper back then, you flipping knew it. People were knocking on your door, talking about you everywhere you go. It was like, whoa, this is, this is mad. Just gone from being a, like Andrew Tate would say, a brokey as a lifeguard in a bed sit. I almost got evicted from my 35 pound rent. So having this money, now I'm being like talked about everywhere. I'm on the front page, all of these tabloids and board sheets. Then on the back of that, how it works, is all the TV shows, they scan the papers, they look for good stories, and they invite you on TV. So back then, some of you here look like you're old enough to remember it, the shows. You had Esther Ramson, you remember that one? Uh, Trisha, Kilroy, she's nodding her head, so she must be similar age to me. You don't look it, you look about 20. But uh, Esther Ramson, Kilroy, and then we did the BBC. Then it wasn't Good Morning Britain, it was GMTV, I believe. Richard and Judy did all these shows. Yeah, I kind of made me like a household name back then. And it came to the attention of Yuri Geller. Do you remember Yuri? Yeah. So Yuri's like, I know here he's known as a spoon bender, right? But around the world, he's famous in every country of the world. And he sells out stadiums and he's got TV shows. A bit like X Factor. It's called The Next Yuri Geller, where people audition to be like him. In America, it's called Phenomenon. And um, I don't know why... I, he had a saying that you can't be a prophet in your hometown because England don't really give him the respect. Very wealthy man, especially property, extremely wealthy man. He lives in Israel now. He's got the Yuri Geller Museum there. He's 76 now and we're very, very close friends. So came to his attention. He wanted to meet me. He told his bodyguards that, get hold of this guy. I want him to do a self-defense video because he's all about what he's about, positive thinking, overcoming bullying. And then Yuri was going to do the mind power of staying positive, don't be negative, you are what you, you believe and so on. And we could record a VHS and distribute it to schools all across the UK free of charge. So I went to see him. Now his house is something else, right? So when you're that kind of age, you drive down to that house. It's a replica of the White House next to George Clooney's place in Sonnen on Thames in Reading. So I was like, whoa. Because I just, one parent said to me, with respect to uh, Yuri, I didn't know who he was. Oh, hi, Yuri. I forgot I was being recorded. Maybe a little bit when I was a kid. But I didn't really know much about it. But my parents said, you've got to meet this guy because um, he's, he's extremely famous. And in the 70s, he was, he was a massive, massive name. So I drive down, the gates open up. I'm thinking, whoa, this is what I want. This is where I want to be. I mean, the place is worth 20 million. And I thought, where does the spoon bit come in, you know? And then I met his assistant. And Yuri comes in, all full of energy. And then towards the end, he did the spoon. I was like, frick, man, I want to be like this guy. But yeah, not so much the spoon bit. I did go home and try it for about three hours out at the end. <laughs> it didn't work. Yeah, I, I want to be like this guy. Anyway, he just, we just got on really well. He, he became godfather of my daughter. The only thing he didn't mention, nor did I really care, I knew he was very influential, and he advised a lot of celebrities, superstars in the past, like John Lennon, Elvis Presley, and people like that. He's from that era. But just by mad coincidence but I don't know I know what prompted it now but back then about three o'clock in the morning and it's not unusual for Yuri Geller to ring you at three o'clock in the morning because he's got companies all around the world he's famous around the world he's got books around the world all translated so I'll pick up the phone and he said hey Yuri you gotta to come to my house now if you don't come to my house now you're gonna regret it for the rest of your life 
and you can't tell anyone you come in to my house, where you're going. I said, well, why, what's going on? Everything all right? So I can't tell you. How am I going to explain this to my missus? <laughs> I'm going off at three in the morning, going to your place. It's, it looks well dodgy. He said, I love you, bye. See you in a minute. Put the phone down. So I got in my car and um, I had a Ferrari and I drove to, um, I drove to you. I got there for about 6.30 in the morning. Gates open up, go down the, the driveway. Nothing really, nothing really significant. I saw a few black SUVs outside. Go inside, go into Yuri's living room, and this skinny guy walks up to me and bows, says, hi, Master Fidesz, my name's Michael Jackson, pleased to meet you. And I'm thinking, I know who you are, but what the hell are you doing here? Is this a prank show or something, or what? <laughs> the guy's like, you know, looking for cameras, because there's this prank show out back then, I don't know what it's called now. Jeremy Beadle. Jeremy Beadle, yeah, <laughs> and Candy Camera. And I thought, oh, Yuri stitched me up, he's his contact now. He's got me on flipping Jeremy Beadle. I was waiting for Jeremy <laughs> Beadle to pop out any minute or something, you know? And I thought, this is Michael. And then I realized those two are best buddies. And so, so far that Uri had actually designed Michael's album cover for an album called Invincible. And he was named in the album. I, I don't know why I never picked up on it, but me and Mike got on really well. We, we, we stayed up talking all day, all night. And um, yeah, I, you know, I had a little Lotus Elise, that's what I had. So a little yellow one, really, really humble. And I drove, to, I drove there with the Lotus Elise and Michael was fascinated by it. He called it a frog because it had like, little eyes at the front. He had this, this sense of humor. So he wanted to go out on it. So I was thinking, you want me to drive you around Reading? Michael Jackson in my Lotus. Yeah, yeah, that'd be cool. Let's do it, Matt. So um, that's what we did. So we drove around and people like waving, thinking it was a lookalike. It was a real deal. Security <laughs> followed us. They had a car behind us and stuff. But I was driving around top down in the in the Lotus Elise with MJ to my left. He's waving at everyone, he was loving it, you know? <laughs> so, so I love this frog. I want to buy one of these frogs. Let's send one of these to Neverland. And we, we became best buddies. And then at the end, I thought, I want to stay, I get on well with this guy. It turned out he wanted to, he's already a black belt. Joseph Jackson, his dad, made all the Jackson Five learn martial arts because of their fame. And he wanted to get his second Dan. And it's very hard for him, as you imagine, he can't rock up to a class. And Yuri knew I was already wealthy. I didn't need any money because people were always trying to attach themselves to him and, and milk him for money or fame or whatever it may be. He knew he, he could trust me to be his friend because he had a very lack of friends. His security bill at the time was about 150,000 a month. So I could wipe that off and use my, my team, my instructor and myself to help him out. We didn't talk much about it at that period of time, but I, tell, I learned that's what, what triggered it. Plus he wanted to meet Bruce Lee's daughter. So what Michael Jackson did is that he would study the greats in the world and then take bits from them and then make it better. So his dancing evolved from Fred Astaire and Pete James Brown. He would study them as a young kid. Like Stevie Wonder said to me once, he said, that, that young Michael used to drive me mad. Question, question, question. I know I couldn't see him, but hearing him was enough. He says, all the time, just learning. How, how can you get this song? How did you get this beat? How can you design that? And um, yeah, I thought I'd take my shot. So Michael, um, uh, can I have your number? I'll give you a ring at some point to stay in touch. Oh, I don't have a phone. I thought, oh, here we go. Don't have a phone. I'll take your number. It's like one of those dates that go wrong, you know? Yeah. So I said, yeah, all right, here's my number. Yeah, I'm going to give you a call in two weeks. He's going to New York. So, okay. Anyway, about two months went past. Said nothing. You imagine me, right? Eight, 18, 19, going back to my family. Where have you been this weekend? Driving Michael Jackson around Reading in me, Lotus Elise and watching movies with him and trying to think I'm freaking mad. So 
there was, and Yuri didn't want me to say anything because it's <coughs> like a little inner circle we had, Mohammed Al-Fayed and Yuri and Britney Spears and people like that. And yeah, so anyway, a couple months later, we had proper answer phones back then, the big built-in ones at my martial arts school. And my brother who worked for me at the time, he was a receptionist, called up saying, Matt, you want effing believe, effing this, effing that. Michael, effing Jackson's left a three-minute voicemail. <laughs> He's got tickets for you to go to New York and spend some time with him at a hotel. And uh, it's by Concord as well. And um, yeah, I, I, I played it about 300 times. And uh, I went out seeing him. I stayed with him for three or four weeks and then we became solid mates. And then just by chance, to ask you a question, what happened the next stage is that you, you heard the saying that billionaires are very interested in the people they meet because they get asked a lot. So Michael was a billionaire and he was very curious about what I did. He said, how, you, how is your business going? I said, I've got five schools, but I can't go any bigger because the next town's 40 miles away. I can never get someone to travel that far. And he said, sure you can. It's called franchising. He franchised his brand. Some seats over here, guys at the back. Come and grab a seat. Yeah, yeah there was. He franchised his brand and licensed his brand. He did the biggest endorsement deal ever back then with Pepsi Cola. And he wrote on a napkin, I wish I kept it. This is what you got to do. And it's things like systemize your business and so on. Be good at media, manipulating the media, making sure you, you're getting your, your name out there all the time. And, he, and then he would keep me accountable. And he introduced me to a franchise lawyer, his franchise lawyer. So, yeah, I, I, was, in, in, I was in trouble then. So I had Yuri Geller pushing me to stop buying these supercars and buy houses because he's really, and I, I hated him for it. I love him for it now because we've got loads of houses and it's all down to him, if I'm brutally honest, and being, keeping me accountable. Then I had Michael Jackson ringing me up. How many franchises have you sold? How many students? I'm thinking, dear me, this phone call's gonna come in. Why did he tell you to franchise it? Or what, what was the inspiration behind the franchising? Because it's, it's the, he felt, his exact words to me, if I could be a poor boy from Gary, Indiana, where my dad goes to a steel mill, can't feed us some days, and we have to supply from handouts, and he's got shoes with holes in, and, and have the biggest selling album in the world, Thriller, and fill up stadiums, you can find a way to get an instructor to go 40 miles away. And the easiest way to do that is franchising, mm -hmm. scaling quicker. Uh, you see that it's a, my, for me, it was a major obstacle. My career's finished, I've got my five schools, I've got my property, I'm happy. But for him, I ain't done nothing yet, basically is his words. I'm not even, I, I could go massive with this thing. Uh, so yeah, he, he kept me accountable on that. So the phone calls would go like this. I'd, he would, I'd, I'd avoided him purposely a lot. It's, Landlines, remember, so he would ring up, he would catch me, rehearsal wife at the time, she'd answer the phone, come to Matt, Michael's on the phone, oh, tell him I'll ring him back, you know, he really wants to speak to you, oh, I don't know, but I haven't, I haven't hit my target this month, tell him I'll ring him back, and then I'd wait a few days, he'd come in, Michael Jackson on the phone, I can't keep ignoring the phone calls to Michael Jackson, this is crazy, we live in Barnstable, this shouldn't be happening, uh, and then one, one morning in particular, Saturday morning, I tend to sleep in, on my, uh, I'm like the anti 5 a.m. club. It's about midday, and it, was, it went like this. It went, uh, Michael Jackson's on the phone. I, I'm, I'm tired, I'll ring him back. Yuri Geller's called, called. He wants you to ring him back urgently. I'll ring him back later on when I wake up. Britney Spears was on the phone. Yeah, I'll ring her back too later on. Then I thought to myself, I went to sleep. This ain't freaking normal. <laughs> this ain't normal. But yeah, he kept me accountable. I, I would avoid it, because the, the conversation would be like, a, how many schools you opened up, Matt? I've done 20. Well done. And how many members in each one? About 50, 60 in each one. Oh, well done, Matt. And I, I throw the question back to him. How did you do? Great, I've just signed a 
70 million deal to, to tour Korea. And I come off the phone feeling like, crap, you know, like, <laughs> I need to up my game. And I was on my Argos, like, beta freaking phone. And I can imagine him with his gold-plated, gold-plated phone from Neverland. But yeah, we became best buddies. He kept me accountable. We opened up 400 sites that year and um, became the biggest martial arts brand in the world. I mean, it was just, by the time I was 29, I was worth 30 million. It was just, uh, but I was part of an exclusive mastermind. I didn't realize it, Joe, did I? Mm -hmm. We didn't have that word back then. So I was having dinner with Mohammed Al-Fayed and, and, and Michael and Daryl Hannah and, and stuff like that, you know? So yeah, it, it was abnormal life, nor would I change it, but I didn't do the clubbing, the going out, I, I kind of gave that up because these people I was with, that's not how they roll. That's not how they roll. That's when I, where I was with them, they were talking about ideas, not to make money, but to change the world. And on the back of that, the money come. They would think out of this one. That kind of rubbed off on me. When he died, I realized that, yeah, this is, this is, that was, that was a very unique mastermind that I was part of. Yeah, I love that. You're part of a mastermind without even knowing that you were part no of a idea. mastermind. You know, and a big part of what we're trying to achieve with the Millionaire Mastermind is about um, putting everybody around the right people that are making big things happen, that are making big moves. You know, and we were just talking before I um, brought you on. One of the reasons, uh, one of the lessons that I took again from GrowthCon was about thinking big. Yeah. You know, being around people that think bigger, that are achieving big things. So their achievements are dwarfing what you're doing to then make you feel like you need to level up. And it's still like that now, Joe. Yeah. Even though he's gone, I, I, he was like a friendly competition. I knew I, you, know, you can't get uh, more, well, are you, I don't know. But he, he was bringing in 80, 90 million a year just off royalties of the Beatle catalogue. Mm. And our network of friend, I mean, I was the poorest guy in the room, but that's probably the best thing to be at the time, I suppose. And Mohammed Al-Fayed owned Harrods and shut it down for us. I mean, that was my reality. Like we went to Disneyland last year in, in Paris and um, it's quite hard mentally because I'm used to rocking up at Disneyland with Michael and we use all, you probably don't realize, but underneath Disneyland is all these tunnels. That's why you don't see any rubbish anywhere. Because they're up, they clean it up, go out again. That's the, way it, that's the way it works. And so we use the tunnels with, with Michael Jackson. So we use the tunnels, we come up a ride, right at the ride did start, there's no one around. We'd go around the ride, back in the tunnel, someone would lead us to the next ride and so <laughs> on. No queuing, nothing. Well, that don't happen anymore, man. I'm in those queues. <laughs> I, said my, I said to my wife, Jesus, they don't used to be like this, darling. Five rides in a day, <laughs> getting wet through, yeah, getting COVID-fied by everybody, queuing up, even with a fast track. It's, this is <laughs> my first 10 years of adulthood was nothing like this. But that was the reality, like going to Harrods. Even when I go to Harrods now, I was just thinking, I'm used to this place just being for me to shop. But yeah, Mohammed sold that now. He's like in his 90s now, so uh, yeah. Bit of a mad, mad wow, time. what a crazy, crazy story. So yeah. um, the franchise piece is something that I'm really, really interested in because yeah. you said, you know, that was a way for me to be able to scale your business and everybody in this room is trying to scale their business in some way, shape or form. So you, do you believe that the franchise business model is a fast way to scale and are there, do you think that it would work for construction businesses yeah, in well, your opinion? I've I, you know, I would do that. I, I mentor people, mentor people to scale their business and, and through franchising. And I've done bird tables for people that have eagles that go and get birds of prey, like in, um, you probably see it at some train stations where pigeons get in, you know, and they, that's franchised out. You can franchise out anything. I, I won't mention his name, so 
haven't got his permission, but I helped someone franchise out HMOs, House mm -hmm. Multiple Application recently, very successful. But yeah, you can franchise any business. It is the quickest way. And you're building an asset that becomes valuable. So you can license, which is another way of doing it, mm -hmm. but you're not really building an asset. So what happens now, people who buy my franchises now are not martial artists. Yep. They're normally fitness professionals or they're investors who want a good return on money because an average return is 50 to 60% on their money. So they'll buy a franchise, they'll employ martial arts instructors and they, it's, for them, it's where you're gonna get return on your money nowadays. It's tough out there, isn't it? The banking gonna give you that if your money's safe there in the first place. Classic cars, maybe, if you know what you're doing there, watches, I know you're into your, you know all that market, I don't know much about that. But yeah, so that's, that's the model. So for franchising, as long as you do it right and you have a successful pilot that's proven and profitable, then I can show you how to franchise pretty much anything. Because to me, it was just normal. I, everything was normal, I didn't know any different. But yeah, absolutely. I've never found a business that I've not been able to franchise. It's just been very, very simple. You can scale quick because all these people in this room, whether it's one or 35, 40, 50, you're mm -hmm. talking to the same, you can make the same, same pitch. And also with franchising, why do, why do you want to make all the mistakes yourself and go through all that pain when you can just skip all that, learn from what they've made, <coughs> follow the blueprint. And rather, it's took me 27 years to get to where I am. And Knowing what I know now, I would have done it in three to five, mm -hmm. I reckon. So my franchise is very, very blessed, my investors are. Because so. we were talking, um, again, before you came on, about opportunity vehicle. Knowing the opportunity vehicle that you're in and understanding where it is that you want to get to. And just some businesses out there, if you continue to try and just grow that one business, you're going to blow that business up and yeah, yeah. Um, it's going to become too big for the market that you're trying to serve. You know, you're... You, didn't decide to go and build a 10,000 client dojo, did you? No. Um, where you're gonna bring 10,000 students in, because at that level it probably isn't gonna work. So you've got it to a level, you've got it to each franchise producing X amount of revenue per franchise, and then rather than trying to scale up that one business, you've then taken that same model and literally dropped it somewhere else. Taken the same model yep. and dropped it somewhere else. Um, so it, it, makes a, it makes an opportunity vehicle actually more attractive um, on, a, on a, a smaller opportunity, more attractive without trying to have to change opportunity vehicles. Does that make sense? Yeah. Like you get your plumbing business to half a million quid or a million pound a year and, you and then you on. say, right, if I keep trying to grow this one, I'm going to have all these other problems, but actually I can go and um, put another million pound business over there or another one over there, for example. And what that does too, it makes you makes you recession proof, pandemic proof, everything proof. Because I really do believe a lot of money was made out of that pandemic, billions was made. There will be future lockdowns, there will be future global warming things or something, something will happen. Mm -hmm. there, I, watch my words. So, so my model, what I've done mm -hmm. there, and that's a good point what you touched on. So the American way is big, one place, get 2000 members in and work it. Now that's not sustainable. In the UK, it's not sustainable anyway. So my very first martial arts school I told you about in Barnstable always ran at 700 active members training per week. Now that's hovering around 150 to 200 now. That's normal. Because what you'll do, like Joe pointed out, you will saturate your area and you'll just beating everyone with the same messages all the time. And it just becomes painful when in fact, just, just do the same thing. Get to a certain level which you know is workable and just keep duplicating it over and over and over again. If you've got one, you might as well have three or 4,000. It makes no mm -hmm. difference. My life's no different having 
1,450 locations to what it would be having one. Mm -hmm. And I'm goddamn richer because of it. And when it comes to recessions, I don't have to have worry about 500 people being maintained and having to take on 50 to 100 a month to maintain that because you're going to get a natural loss of clients, attrition. All I have to worry about is one or two per town, maintaining 100 members per town. That's, you can do that in any market, recession, depression. So we've gone through all that. We've been going since 97. So we've gone through to 2008, 2009. Now, now I grew like hell through then, because I said to all my team, yes, yeah, apparently it's a recession, but we're not taking part in it. I've told them the same recently as well. We put more marketing out, we went for it, we expanded, and we grew like crazy over that, that time. I bought more houses than I ever did in that time too. Everyone else contracts, that's when you go for it. That's the biggest secret to this thing. And um, then we had the pandemic. That was a challenge. I retired at 40. That was the plan. My wife said it wouldn't last five minutes, it lasts three months. And then lockdown come. So we were going to move to Cyprus. And um, for lifestyle reasons. And the tax benefits. <laughs> but, but yeah, we went over there, got our house. Come back in February 2020. Gonna, I was going to take more of a back seat and let senior franchises have more of a role. And then people were wearing these masks. And for me, that's quite ironic, seeing people wearing face masks, right? Especially when I had to put one on myself. Because you've got to remember, I was moaning about this with Michael all the time. Because he'd wear, do you remember seeing him with those masks on? He'd wear them to create curiosity, to stay relevant all the time. Put his face mask on, he knew it would guarantee him media press. I used to be so embarrassed. Was like, we're going to a business meeting, man. Don't wear the mask. Please don't wear it. We used to try and hide it and stuff like that. And then he put sticky tape on his hands and then plaster on it, uh, allergy tape on his nose to make people think his nose is falling off to, to get in the media, you know? And it was deeply embarrassing as one of his close friends to walk around with him wearing that kind of stuff. Right as your best mate goes and puts a fedora on, plasters himself with makeup, you know, minutes before we're in a pair of jeans and a t-shirt in this suite, says I've got to go, go become Michael Jackson, then puts lipstick on, you couldn't get any, it comes out and it's dark, he's wearing shades. And I thought, what are you doing? He said, oh, it guarantees me the media, you watch, should be billions of pounds of publicity I can't buy. And he was right, we got the front pages, but God, it was embarrassing, I tell you. We, we had a meeting once, this is off subject, but we had a meeting once with Kofi Annan, who was the head of the United Nations, remember him? I don't know if he's still around or not. And I said, Michael, please don't dress up. Just be normal, just, just be normal for once. Forget about all the giraffes and everything else and just, just keep your jeans on, your T-shirt. Just come normal. No, 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 I've got to be Michael Jackson. I've got to keep the mystery alive, keep them guessing. So he came out flipping heck. I, my face mask, shades. He might as well have had a bag over his head. Makeup on, eyelash stuff. I was like, no. The loafers he's known for, the trousers were too short it's to go and meet that the um, head of the United Nations, it was, I just stepped back and the way I just sort of flipped, you know, it's embarrassing. But yeah. So um, did he play a character and add a different persona yeah, behind it's, that it's character? Like, it's, I know it's bit backfired on him mm -hmm. now, isn't it? Because everyone thinks, oh, weirdo, pedo. Come on, man, I associate myself to a guy like that. I've got a children's organisation, I've got six kids. I know the women who are in his room, because I've got a room sharing to him, I can hear the he he's going on all night. <laughs> If anyone knows, I know. We've got cameras outside his flipping door, which we monitor, you know, from our rooms. I know exactly. Mike was married twice. He's married to Lisa Marie Presley. He died recently. And yeah, there's a lot of hee hee. Uh huh, what's going on that night, I tell you. <laughs> so they, it's, um, yeah, it's honestly, it's just a lot, it manipulated the media 
He learned it from, have you ever watched the film The Aviator? Howard Hughes, you have to go and watch it. So mm -hmm. Howard Hughes was an eccentric guy and by his, his, he designed airplanes and stuff. I can't remember who plays him now. Leonardo DiCaprio. Leonardo, yeah, he, Leo plays him. And um, he does a good job playing him, he's eccentric. Now, Michael Jackson was fascinated by the way people were fascinated with Howard Hughes just because he was a bit eccentric. He wouldn't go out much, you wouldn't see him out in daylight, he'd stay in his room an awful lot. And he realized the value of, of keeping a mystery. So he said to us always, remember, my life needs to be the biggest show on earth, on stage and off. No one must know about my private life. I remember the record companies when you're five or six years old back then, were brainwashed you, don't ever get married, don't ever say you've got a girlfriend, don't show that to you because you'll kill your fan base. So he was brainwashed by that, by Motown Records and other, he, that's what he used to tell me. So that was, that was the thing. Now towards the end, he loosened up a bit and he was kind of happy to to, uh, for people to, to know about it. He obviously got publicly married twice and he had a girlfriend right to the very end. Yeah, he, he, his trouble was not with kids, his trouble was with women. We'd come, come past the gates to the hotel and they'd be like, she's nice, I like that one. You know, bring her to my room, you know, and, and stuff like that. But yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a mystery, but it backfired on him. I think it's, uh, he's not here to defend himself anymore. If you do dress like that and go to that level of fame, he used to say the bigger the star, the bigger the target. He was very generous, extremely generous. He built Neverland, not for a home, that was not his home, that was for him to have li literally 10,000, I spoke to the manager, the former manager of Neverland recently on a podcast. Over 10,000 kids a year went through there, Make-A-Wish Foundation, it's built for them. It's got a theater, fairground, zoo, and everything else. And he, he was rarely there, we used to say to him, it cost him a fortune to run it, it was a couple of million a month, if I remember rightly. And he was never at Neverland, that was a joke. He was much more comfortable in LA, in the Beverly Wilshire Hotel, where he had the hotel security, he had the Michael Jackson suite, they named it after him because he's there so much. So it's just all a load of absolute nonsense, mm. but yeah, that's the media. Interesting stuff. So um, when you're building out a franchise versus building out a traditional business, one of the biggest challenges is the back-end operations when you're scaling. So. Is a franchise model operationally to build and scale easier than building a in building one business to a large level? Like what are yeah. the mechanics behind the scenes to be able to take on a franchise, manage a franchise? Obviously it's obviously there's heavy sales and marketing at the front end to bring in the potential franchisees, but is there a lot of operational management at the back end to make them work or yeah. are they pretty self sufficient? Good question. So, everyone assumes, Matt, you must have a lot of employees. I haven't. I've got, I've got one employee who's a PA. I've got a franchise dispatch person who manages the warehouse and sends all the merchandise to the franchisees. I've got an outsourced designer who just gets paid by the hour, simple as that. I've got a general manager who's on a retainer and also looks after keeps an eye on my property portfolio for me as well. He knows, I haven't visited most of my houses. He's, you know, he's, he knows where they all are and keeps an eye on that. And that's it, right? Yeah, that's pretty much it. So that's the beauty about franchising. So everyone who's under me, all my franchisees, it's their business, it's their responsibility. They have their staff. So sometimes they will call me in. There was an issue, I had something yesterday to be called in for and get on the phone. But it's their staff, they answer to the franchisee, not the franchisor. 
I provide them with the systems and the know-how, the cutting-edge information, the media, the, the, the Facebook advertising is controlled by us. We do all the front-end stuff for them. Mm -hmm. So they literally have a business in a box. So the hard work for me, so my life's pretty chilled. Right? I don't have to do much at the moment. If I, unless I want to, and I want to. I, I love what I do. I want to open another thousand schools. We're going aggressively at it right now just because I've got all this time on my hands. And the franchises, the hard work was done maybe 15, 17 years ago when I'm trying to get these people off the grounds and I only get paid if they make money. I take a percentage of their earnings. That was the formula that most franchises you buy, you pay a retainer at this level and a retainer at this level goes up. Um, but with me, I just thought, you know, let's make it fair. I'm only going to get paid a percentage of what you earn. So if I don't make you make the money, I'm not going to earn anything from you. So an average franchisee took me about two years to see a return off him. And my biggest one now, he does about seven million a year. So you, you can work that out. I make a lot from, his, from him. I get 20% uh, of that. He um, doesn't resent it because when I met him, he nearly lost his house and he couldn't even afford the upfront franchise fee, 10,000 pounds. But I saw the potential on this guy. So I said to him, you know what? I, you're so persistent, I want to help you out. And so I said, just pay it out of your earnings. So I was that confident over two years. And that's exactly what he did. Look at him now. Uh, you know, he's, he's so you take a percentage of the revenue, not the profit? I take a percentage of, of the gross, but not all income streams. Yeah. Only the memberships and the exam fees. The rest of it, I let them keep that. Yeah. And I operate as a family organization. So even though there's a lot of them, Joe, I pretty much know, I'm quite hands-on. I know if they're on holiday, if anything's wrong with them, or, their wives, their husbands, their kids' names. I'm very personally, um, I go the extra mile. If I find out someone's ill and they can't get in the NHS, I, I pay for them to go privately. I've done that a lot of times. So it's, a, I build, it's like a family, we have like a hashtag, MF family, we call it, Matt Fidesz family. And, um, and that's how it is. So the hard work's done at the beginning. And then once you've uploaded, you've done your systemizing, you've put a business in a box, once you've done that bit, then all you've got to do is update it in time. So back then, it was print media competing for the right-hand page, black <coughs> or white or colour, top spot where your eyes go when you look, you don't on the left page. Now, of, of course, it's social media, Reels, TikTok, Twitter's going to be big, and I believe now Elon Musk has got, got it in his hand. So we've had to evolve the marketing end, and things have changed now. Like you can't, like my, for my sector, the instructors cannot tie their belts off on, on them if they fall off anymore due to safeguarding. I know it sounds crazy, but it's true can't take them to the bathroom. So we, we've had to update all that. So you always got to be evolving. The ones that don't evolve fall off the, fall off the bandwagon. Mm. So for me, I'm always at the cutting edge, looking for the next best thing, hanging around with the right people, which is the key, right? You got, if you could sum up my success, I've hang around and I still do to this day. I, my friends are only billionaires and, and multi-millionaires and I make sure they're real. They're not like these fake ones who build an online course or try and copy me or imitate what I've done or imitate what some of you guys are trying to do. I, I, I think it's fair enough. You're going to buy a mastermind or someone or buy a, a, a program. You should I ask them, can I see your five years accounts, please? Can I see what, are you making any money yourself? What's the evidence? You're going to coach me and mentor me. Show me mm. a show. Everyone knows of me because I'm flipping Google. Right? I have 27 years of social proof. But you, you should have the right. And there's so many fake masterminds out there fake millionaires, coaches, people who should not be advising. They are broke and they're teaching people in their sector how to grow their business and they haven't done it themselves. 
This was Joe, you know he's been there and done it and he's been scrutinized by the media. And I know what it's like, right? Mm. On TV, geez, man, the reporters, they want your blood. They want you. So when I did Rich House, Poor House, we did two episodes of that. It, they, they, I had a journalist going through my finances, plus you have to disclose everything because of Ofsted. So yeah, it's, it's, in, it's intense, but I think that's good. I think that's a good thing. Do I you think, like being in the media? Do you like the attention? Uh, Do you enjoy the attention? It's necessary. I don't like it. I know mm -hmm. people think that's rubbish because what happened yesterday, I don't know if you saw that, so I went to, um, this was just a random one. I should have been clued up enough to, to uh, normally I would have been. I went, I wanted to buy, because um, we didn't go to Cyprus, I got rid of my cars. And in lockdown, I didn't have to drive anywhere. So I had this nice gold Bentley, and I got rid of that. And I thought, what the hell, we were going to Swindon, they got a big garage there, Dick Lovett, stupid name I know, Dick Lovett. My wife loves it anyway. And then the, um, right? Yeah. That's right. <laughs> and um, I said, you like Dick Lovett? The store? Yeah. yeah. So we went in, so we put up outside, and I, I know, we've got a nice car, we've got a nice car, we've got like a brand new um, Range Rover. But I basically not had a car for the last few years. So literally, people say, do you have a meeting? Yeah, sure. Where, where do you want to meet? I'll send you the Zoom code. I'm like, oh, am I ever going to leave this house? You know, it just goes on forever. So I decided to go, summer's coming, let's go and buy a couple of Ferraris. So, yeah, I'm, I'm like this, right? I'm not going to just, I'm not like Joe. I used to be like Joe, it's fair to say. I used to wear a suit every day. But I don't see people. I don't meet people. I'm at home with my family. I work from home. I've got a nice house there. And I don't need to be in a suit. So I just got, since lockdown, just, I'm pretty casual. I'm not just going to dress up for the hell of it. For you guys, being something I'm not. So I was in a tracksuit. Now, even though we've got a lot of money, my wife's got this fascination with freaking Primark and everything else, and guests and stuff like that. So I, when I'm traveling, I like to be comfortable in a tracksuit. You don't travel like that, surely, Joe, do you? On long flights and things. You do. I actually do. Yeah. <laughs> Fair play. I put, a, I put a picture of me on um, Virgin Business Class the other day with Chris, and we were sat on the plane, both of our sunglasses on, in three-piece suits, and I got absolutely slaughtered. Yeah. About 700 comments of just abuse, abuse, abuse. Um, and then I, um, I published a few more posts after that just to wind a few people up. Yeah. So I know I might have isolated it's a few. Push the algorithm, like make sure more famous. Out, but maybe actually successful. you can help me choose the colour of my next jet. And then I posted yeah. a picture out of three jets. Because I said with the picture, I put the picture out and said I wanted to buy two. We made a pact that in the next two years, me and Chris will only fly a private jet. And then by 40, we'll own two private jets. And on LinkedIn, if you put anything about money, the fucking money army come out and you get absolutely destroyed. You're not allowed to have goals on LinkedIn that are big and ambitious. Ah. So save that stuff for Instagram. Put it on LinkedIn. That's it. They want you finished work by four o'clock and spending your time with your family and walking the dog. And that's about as ambitious as you can be or you're going to get shot down. Just... Uh, um, prepare everybody but you know, I know there was a lady at Grovecon called Megan Kelly and uh, a bit a famous um, uh, news journalist in America I don't know if you know who that is blonde lady but um, she was up there and it was actually my phone was just pinging off pinging off pinging off when I was watching on this post and um, she's very controversial talks about you know all of the politics and all the stuff that's going on in the world Bill Gates COVID she's got all of her opinions and she was saying um, you know about 
understanding her audience and you know and, and manipulating the message and um, and you know actually rather than being afraid of posting stuff that a lot of people are they're afraid to be themselves that guy is me if I want to sit on a fucking plane with shades on in a suit that's exactly what I will do yeah. that's who I am I own it I don't pretend to not be that person and um, and uh, as it was going off, she was like, well, you know, you understand the people that you're talking to. And now she purposely put stuff out to just piss people off because they're just easy to manipulate. So that's why I put the next few posts out, just continuing so to anyway, wind everybody. Then you've got to have fun with it rather than being afraid because yeah, 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 people, yeah. people are afraid to um, speak out on LinkedIn or build their brands because they're afraid of getting shot down, right? And if you don't have those comments, you're not going to go viral. Yeah. And you're not going to have the You've got to take that. They're your fans. They're your free free publicist. So, so we, yeah, we arrived at this Ferrari garage in Swindon, Dick Lovett Ferrari, and I, I rolled out, it's about a three hour drive for us, roll out the car in a tracksuit and walk in, walk straight past the, the, the showroom greeters, they gave me a bit of a smile, walk into this completely empty showroom full of Ferraris, and I read it, Monique just popped the phone up, she said, you look ridiculous, you know. You look, I said, yeah, no one's going to approach me like this, right? Sure enough, 20 minutes, no one approached me. Empty in the Ferrari. I could buy every car in that, in that store, buy the building, take on all the staff and tell them they got to come to work in their underpants the next day. No one was coming there. I couldn't believe it. I thought, wow. I was asked, but I didn't prejudge, but I know that works. Human psychology. They saw me, tracksuit, Primark man, probably wants a picture in the car and all the rest of it. 16 seconds of footage. Didn't think of anything of it. And I want to wake up my clients, so I, I uploaded it to Instagram. Didn't think anything of it. I should have done. I should have been more savvy because I'm pretty good at this type of stuff normally. I had a good teacher with Michael. Put it up on Instagram stories and basically said, you know, guys, don't prejudge. You don't know what people got in their wallets. I was in Ferrari, didn't get approached for 20 minutes. And by that point, what was, you know, stuff that I'll buy from somewhere else. I mean, they're very lovely to me when they came over to me in the end. One of the photographers there recognized me from Rich House. Poor house, you know that is over there. And they were flipping on me like you wouldn't believe, two of them. So that kind, of, that kind of put me off a little bit. And he admitted to me, he didn't approach me because the way I was dressed, that, that, that was the thing. So I put it up on Instagram. Within about three minutes, Sun newspaper, we want that story. I said, it's not a story. I'm just, my wife just filmed me having a laugh. And oh, said, we're putting it out off your Instagram, whether you like it or not. And then it went freaking everywhere yesterday. Tracksuit millionaire, guy tries to buy a Ferrari. And they manipulated the story a little bit. It's not the full truth, but. The thing is, I'm getting trashed like you wouldn't believe. Why would you expect people to come over to you? They didn't recognize you. Not everyone watches you on TV. Oh, you're riding off Michael Jackson's name, all this type of stuff. But like, you keep going, babies, because you keep commenting. You're making me even more famous, pushing it up, and I'm going to make even more money. My franchise is going to get richer, which means I get richer. I'll buy more houses, and you'll get broker. And, then, and they're on there commenting away. I'm not interested in you. Why, why is this even used? Why are you flipping commenting on it, you muppet? <laughs> Why are you taking the time out to read in the story to the end, getting emotionally attached and commenting on it, and, and you're pushing the algorithms up, and you, I'm laughing, and I'm thinking, this is wonderful. You know, it's fantastic, and it's going viral on all these sites and their Facebook sites, and that just helps it push my brand out even more. You, you, there's a saying, isn't there? You only worry about PR when they, they don't spell your name right. That's it, really. <laughs> That's it. And, um, yeah, media is so important. It really is. And people say mainstream media. My, my, I'm good friends with a guy called Rob Moore. He's one of my best mates. He says all the time, mainstream media is dying. It's, that's true, but it's still the most valuable, more valuable than social media, I truly believe. Because 
there's a thing called social proof, right? You know Joe, you put him in Google, you're gonna find a lot of media articles about him. Same as me, some are gonna be stuff with headlines. You can't control the headline, the headlines will always be wacky because they want you to click on it, and they won't always be true. And it'll be because it's their game, they've got to sell advertising, you've got to play the game with them. But what are you gonna pick? Are you gonna pick a business that's got a verified blue tick page and it has pages and pages of media stories on them, social proof is called, or are you gonna pick a business that just uses social media and it's got no verification and no stories underneath? You're gonna mm. pick the social, the social proof one all day long. And that's the key. So with me, I don't work it so hard. I've turned down a lot, lot of, we've done a lot of shows together, like we've done Talking Pints, that was a good one, I thought I'd do that one. I won't, I won't drive up to London just to do three minutes on this morning anymore, unless it's something that's important. But it's not being on TV that's important because when I did it at my prime of my career, I had 20 million watching me on this mm. morning. Now, 750,000. But the value is, by the time you get off that, that couch and you're back in your car, you're, you're in all the onlines, the Sun Online, the Mirror Online, the Express, the, de the Mail Online, which is the biggest media outlet in the world. And that is embedded into search engines. So when people look you up, they're gonna see that. That's the value in it. So mainstream media is dying because there's thousands of channels. When peak micro, we had four, three or four. Then channel five started to come out. But to use it to gain yourself credibility and social proof is important. And you've got to know when to come off the accelerator and then push it again. So I, I've got a wacky story in my life, so I can always get on there. As long as I give them a line about my famous clients or whatever it may be or something in my career, they will allow me to talk about pretty much anything, and that's invaluable. So, so um, I'm a bit picky what I do, but it is important. Now, do I like it? Mm. I don't like being in th that kind of limelight. I hate it. I hate being, like yesterday, I, I didn't like that kind of coverage. It's still going on today, but it's necessary. My franchises, I owe it to them. I've had a unique life, and for them, it just sends traffic to the Facebook pages, makes my ads work better, makes the student respect us more because they stay longer because they think, oh, our, you know, the head of our organization, our company is, is relevant. And you, you've always got to make an effort to go back and, and, and be relevant the whole time. So that, that is important. But doing the right media is, I've turned down Celebrity Big Brother many times because I was worried about, that's edited, right? That's, that's a whole, you'll be careful with it. I've been caught out a few times with that. But anything live, I'll do, you know. That's How important, important, Matt, do you think it is to have a personal brand behind your business brand in 2023? Because we were talking, yeah. I can't remember which speaker it was that we had, but they were saying about, you know, personal brands, you know, so, so important. Because when now people are wanting to do business with a business, they really want to do business with the person behind the business. Exactly. And it's these personal brands yeah that have made the business more famous in a lot of cases, maybe like Apple and Microsoft and so yeah, on, yeah. And the business has made the personal brand famous. I, th I think the personal brand bit, that's evolved out of social media. That's the reason we didn't have it back when, when I started my career. It was just build a brand. Mm -hmm. So a brand, what's a brand? People think, oh, I've got a brand. No, you don't, you have a logo. A brand is something that's been around, has proven the test of time, and you've got social proof, whether it's testimonials, clients, media articles, and so on. A logo is just something you develop. That's not a flipping brand. Get off your high horse. You ain't done it yet. <coughs> now, personal brand gives you the route now by using social media, where Facebook lives, podcasts, being guests on them, whatever it may be, books, to be able to get to the point of building a brand. 
and promoted it. So if you take Richard Branson, he's a personal brand. He would have said image back then too. But underneath him, he's got all of his companies that he uses personal brand to do it. So my schools are called Matt Fitness Martial Arts Schools. So anything I do is going to have an influence on them. So I've got to be very careful. That's why I'm picking Tuesday with the media side. I, I've had many offers do some crazy media stunts, and I don't do it because it will reflect bad on them. And the nature of the business we do is that I'm a role model to them. So I'll be careful where I associate myself with and stuff like that. But to, yeah, it's like the thing. And people aren't really grasping it. If you work hard consistently every day, posting, 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 eventually you'll use that and you'll be able to build the brand and that's where you're gonna build your massive business and then get your exit strategy for millions. So personal brand is the easy route now to build in a brand which will give you that asset value where you can exit and sell and get there. And um, what would you advise are kind of some um, key points to building your personal brand? I mean, you've done incredibly well with your brand and building your brand and you've um, had some very famous people in your network. Yeah. Has leveraging other people's personal brands really helped um, to yeah. grow your brand? So and if you, when you meet these people, you know, you're shouting about it to get known and do you believe that's giving you more credibility over the years than opened up a lot more doors? Yeah. So, so the way I explain it, I didn't know back then, but I, obviously I know now, and I teach this, is I, I had a, an acceleration in my career because my best mate was the most famous man on the planet. I just saw him as Mike. In fact, we couldn't do anything. When it comes to um, writing up the guest list for my rehearsal wedding, to my rehearsal wife, for, for the stag do and stuff, literally one person was normal. Everyone else was needing security detail and it was meant to be about my rehearsal wife, not about, I have to say rehearsal wife, because my me, me current, my last wife was in the room. But um, it's, touchy, but it's, um, it's, so, it's so important to, to get that right. And so, fame by association is what they call it. So if you are seen so I couldn't understand it, right? Imagine, I'm, I'm like 18, 19. By the time it gets out in public, when me, me and Michael and my famous friends go to awards together, or we're seen out, we did a talk at Oxford Union and, and stuff like that. People are like, geez, man, Matt's friends with Michael Jackson. It's all over the TV and media and everywhere. Then my career just went wild. Everyone wanted to be my friend. Everyone would return my phone call, no matter who it was, because who my best mate was and who I was hanging around with at the time. And then I was newsworthy, so for me to get in the media was very easy. And, it's, and So I'm not naive to, not, to think that being friends with him at such a young age for 10 years didn't accelerate my career. It opened up many doors, it still does now. And people are fascinated by it. So fame by association. And you guys can use that. If you seek out somebody who's doing what you're doing, take the shortcut, because I'm their best mate, and I'm not saying about the fame, but this goes to anything. You can, you can rub off what they've already done and it helps you build your personal brand quicker. So I've helped many people who've come out of Love Island where they've had trouble with the media or it's gone off the rails a bit and they've called for me for advice because I was at the height of it with the most famous guy, controversial guy on the planet. And I've advised them, and I've gone in, and I've helped them, I've been seen with them. And my credibility, um, my international presence, and my association to my social proof will rub off on them. So it's a win-win. They've just come out of Love Island. They're, they're relevant, makes me relevant. 
and I add that credibility to them, whether I'm training them or advising them on business, and they can ride off the back of that. Jess and James, who's not a good, who's sort of Jess and James? Yeah, so he's a multi-millionaire, serial entrepreneur, a credible good friend of mine. He's smart. He wanted to launch a franchise, franchises coaching business online, never been done before. Uh, there, are, there are franchises for coaching. You've all heard of Action Coach. I'm sure people like that. Brad Sugars has done good with that. But it's fair to say that kind of needs updating. So Jason thought, surely this can be done. I mapped it all out for him as a favor. He does things for my organization, my companies too. We're good friends. And I actually went and launched it for him. And we had a room full of 60 people. And he was able, because the biggest question will be, well, you've not done it before, Jesson, but he's able to have me there and say, well, I've got Matt, who's got the biggest franchise in his sector in the world. I've done it in dance as well, by the way, too, so, which I own as well, dance schools. So he, could, he was using my association and success and my fame and my credibility, learning from Michael as well, to help sell his franchise and, and grow and scale faster. And out of those, that room full of people, we had 36 people pay their upfront fee that day, put deposits down, done. That wouldn't have happened unless I was there. People would be like, well, you've not done it before, Jesson. How's that going to work? You might have done four or five, but you, you're riding off the association. So it's not wrong for you to do that. Take shortcuts. Look at who do you want to get to. There's this saying, it's so true, that you're only two, two handshakes away from anyone in this world, and you just got to go after it. And these people will respect you. If you go after their inbox and chase them down, Keep going. They'll respect you in the end. Think, you know what? I want this kind of person to work for me. I want employees like this. I want business partners like this. We're tenacious. I love it when people are inboxing me. Come on, answer me, please. I'm not going to give up. I give in in the end. Go for it. You know, because I'm sure you do the same, Joe, mm -hmm. right? It's like, I want you freaking partners with me. You're tenacious. You're a rare you breed. You test for a little while to see how hungry they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I, I test them out. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I'll test them out. Fantastic. Right? So, Matt, what's next for you then, my man? Other than the thousand franchises that you're going to get? Well, the plan is, I want to be a billionaire by the time I'm 50. So I'm 43, I'm going to be 44 in May. I'm on target for it, and I'll do it. And then, because um, all my mates, you know, you've had Alfie Best here, right? Mm -hmm. He's a close friend of mine. Oh, I want to kick Alfie's ass, man, I tell you. He's got, <laughs> he's got that chopper and everything, and he's teasing me flying over my house and all this stuff. Pisses me <laughs> off. Like, you know, I'm just flying over your house, mate. Do you want me to pick you off? And he came to, I won Entrepreneur of the Year last year, and he came along to support me. He's very supportive, but yeah, Alfie's like on it. So for me, it's not about the money. I see money as a point scoring card now, and I do believe the world's going to be a tough place. I've got six kids, so I'm going to end up with loads of grandchildren, four of them are girls. So it's about leaving generational wealth to take care of the legacy ongoing forever. That's what motivates me. So I'm going to do a thousand new schools. I won't stop there. I'll end up doing a load more. Of course, I will. Um, we're launching how to franchise your business, a, a, master, a masterclass, a mastermind. We're doing um, mainstream media mastery. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to leverage my contact book yes. to, to help people get on TV. We're launching that for the next month. My membership site's doing really well, which is bizarre, because when I first heard about this, I thought, I ain't launching a £7.99 membership site, 26p a day. How's that going to go anywhere? But it's like an easy, and a lot of you should cons consider this. I think you've done this, Joe, now, mm -hmm. haven't you? No, I haven't started. You've not yet. done it yet. No. So it's very low entry. And it's well, I had the same opinion. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I did too, because one of my mates did it, and he thrashed it, million a year. And I sat back watching. So why am I watching this? I can, we're, do, we're very different sectors. I'm more like franchise scale, getting the media, marketing, 
investing, I teach in a very different way. And, um, and I have experts in there too. So I'm not actually doing all of it. I do content myself, but I've also got rent-to-rent -rent experts, construction experts, I've got medium experts, Facebook, my Facebook consultants in there with content. And I'm giving it all away for £7.99 today. And even when I bought the domain name, mf.club, it was four grand. I think, what am I paying four grand for mf.club? This is mad. And I, um, yeah, I launched it and it's freaking smashing it. And it's nice. 7.99, it's easy in, easy out. And I'll tell you what the value in that, right? It's not the 7.99, it's that you're gonna build up a community of people who, who wanna be like you. And I've got multi-millionaires in there in all different sectors. We've done collaborations out of it. We've done all sorts of things, events. And that's the true value. So a lot of you, just, just get on with it. Get on the membership site thing. And sure, for you, it'd be massive, man. Yeah, I'd be like, right. if you could just do a low-level one where people can come in. Because do you know what you said earlier on? Mm -hmm. The people only buy from people that they um, know, like, and trust, don't yeah. they? Personal brand. What better way than having a low-level membership site where they can absorb your content, be part of your WhatsApp group, be part of your community, be part of your success stories as well. They're mixing with these people and they hang in that membership site for a few months, then they start buying from you because they start to know, like, and trust you. They believe in you. And that's the key. You can't just flog someone. There's off an ad, it's hard. But if they get in your membership site first and they go, mf.club, 7.99, I know it sounds ridiculous. They, they join the WhatsApp group, they're in there, they, they get mentored by me. I, I do overload them with quite a lot of stuff. They get a lot of content for that. They build trust with me and then they, they start coming to events and then it, it's a low way. I think that's the big thing now. I think, you got to be online. You got to have multiple recurring income. I just run an event with Rob Moore in Peterborough, your hometown, mm. for three days called Multiple Streams of Business Income. And you, you've got the average multi-million have seven streams of income, and that is so true. You can't just rely on what you've got now. Lockdown taught us that, didn't it? You need something online. You need to be working everything. Maybe a franchise business or a licensed business, a membership site, an online course. Things have changed now. You can't just rely on one thing. You've got to just go wide. Get one thing right and then delegate that and then work on the next thing. So for me, building out my mentorship, working with my clients. I'm, I keep saying I won't do it, but I'm going to buy more houses. Next six to eight months, we're going to see house prices. Whoosh, I reckon it's going to gonna have to happen. Fixed rates are running out and they're going from like 1.5%. I think 750,000 people are on 1.5% fixed and are going to come off and get hit with a 5 6%. You imagine what's going to happen. They're all gonna think, oh, I've got equity in my house. Yeah, not for much longer, they won't. They'll all put their houses on the market. They'll come oversaturated, prices will come down. But that's when, like in 2008, I'm gonna go in. I keep saying I won't, but I am. I just can't help it and buy shitloads more houses. And by doing that, you're helping people too, aren't you? You're helping people out of their situation. So all the investors that I'm part of, we just met up recently. It's called the syndicate. It's application only, you only get invited in. You have to be a certain net worth to be part of it. And it's all the biggest entrepreneurs in the UK. We meet every three months. It's like a secret thing in there. And as I said, who's investing in property right now? Nobody would, but they're all saying, they're all cash rich, getting ready to go in hard. And it's gonna be like 2008 all over again, but, but on steroids. I think it's gonna be insane if you do it the right way. Fantastic, let's give Matt a big, big round of applause. <laughs>